0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Words on Fire. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May 15, 2016. My native language is Malayalam, one of India's 22 official languages. Though my parents immigrated to the United States when I was an infant, they insisted we speak Malayalam at home, so I grew up bilingual. I also grew up with a divided and defensive sense of identity. We, brown people, were Indian and spoke Malayalam, while they, white people, were American and spoke only English. As immigrants eager to make America our home, we might cross the great divide and speak English too. But the linguistic traffic would never flow in the opposite direction. After all, I had never even met an American who had heard of my language. This despite the fact that 38 million people on the planet speak it. What's it called again, my friends would ask when I sounded out the four-syllable palindrome. Or, worse, I don't get it. I thought Indians speak Hindu. I must have been nine or ten years old when my aunt and uncle called our extended family together one weekend for a special surprise. When all thirty of us were packed into his living room, my uncle introduced a guest, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman in her thirties, named Sarah. He explained only that Sarah had spent a few childhood years in Delhi, where her parents worked as journalists, and that her family had had vacationed occasionally in Kerala, the South Indian state my family is from. He then handed things over to her. It's hard to do justice to what happened next. Suffice it to say that 30 jaws crashed at the carpet when Sarah nodded to my uncle, smiled warmly at us, and said, Namaskaram, Ningalaya Lavirem Kandadal Enikasandoshamanda. Hello, I'm so happy to meet all of you. Over the next 20 minutes, while my relatives gawked and gaped, Sarah told us her story in careful but convincing Malayalam. Those childhood trips to Kerala had fascinated her, so much so that she moved to South India after college and immersed herself in the language and culture. It was very hard, she admitted, learning the script, forming such new sounds, annoying people with my mistakes, but I'm so glad I did. Over dinner, she went on to explain how her Kerala immersion changed her. I didn't realize before how limited my own perceptions were. My ideas about humor, about art, about God, I didn't know how many things were unsayable in a single language. I thought about Sarah for a long time after that evening, because her visit altered my world. Something became possible for the first time, an alliance, a bridging, a new kind of empathy and friendship. When my family experienced the unprecedented pleasure of hearing an American speak our language, we realized that the many distances separating us from them were not, in fact, uncrossable. Sarah, the stranger, had taken a risk, made herself vulnerable, and entered our world. In doing so, she had rendered us less strange, less alien, less other. But she had also offered us a challenge. It would no longer be possible, in the light of her generosity, to hang on to our stingy, self-protective narratives about identity. She had bulldozed her way through that barrier, and only a massive act of cowardice and denial on our part would re-erect it. This week, we celebrate Pentecost the coming of the Holy Spirit by fire, wind, and word. Pentecost, from the Greek Pentecostos, meaning 50th, was a Jewish festival celebrating the spring harvest and the revelation of the law at Mount Sinai. In the New Testament story Luke tells, the Spirit descended on 120 believers in Jerusalem on the 50th day after Jesus' resurrection. The Spirit empowered them to testify to God's great deeds emboldened the Apostle Peter to preach to a bewildered crowd of Jewish skeptics and drew 3,000 converts in one day. For Christians, Pentecost marks the birthday of the church. By any stretch of the imagination, it's a fabulous birth story, full of riveting details. Tongues of fire, rushing wind, accusations of drunkenness, mass baptism. It's easy to get lost in the spectacle. But the detail that stops me in my tracks every year is this one. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. At this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. As Christians, we place great stock in language, in words. Like our Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters, we are people of the book. We love the creation stories of Genesis, in which God births the very cosmos into existence by speaking, and God said. In the beginning was the word we read in John's dazzling poem about the incarnate Christ. On Sunday mornings, we profess our faith in the languages of liturgy, creed, prayer, and music. In short, we believe that language has power. Words make worlds, and unmake them, too. If this is true, then what does the miracle at Pentecost signify? Have we really grasped the import of what the Spirit did, what the Spirit insisted on, at the inaugural moment of the Church? After all, there is nothing easy about substituting one language for another. Languages are intricate and messy, they carry the full weight of their respective cultures, histories, psychologies, and spiritualities. To attempt one language as opposed to another is to make oneself a learner, a servant, a supplicant. To speak across barriers of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, culture, or politics is to challenge stereotype and risk ridicule. It is a brave and disorienting act. And this is what the Holy Spirit required of Christ's frightened disciples on the birthday of the Church. Essentially, stop huddling in what you call safety. Throw open your doors and windows. Feel the pressure of my hand against your backs. Pour yourselves into the streets you've come to fear and speak. Don't you understand? Silence is no longer possible. You are on fire. What I love about the Pentecost story is that it required surrender and humility on both sides. Those who spoke had to dare languages far beyond their comfort zones. They had to risk vulnerability in the face of difference, and do so with no guarantee of welcome. They had to trust that no matter how awkward, inadequate, or silly they felt, the words bubbling up inside of them—new words, strange words, scary words—were nevertheless essential words, words precisely ordained for the time and place they occupied. Meanwhile, the crowds who listened had to take risks as well. They had to suspend disbelief, drop their defenses, and opt for wonder instead of contempt. They had to be willing to share the languages that defined them. Not all of them managed it. Some sneered because they couldn't bear to be bewildered, to have their neat categories of belonging and exclusion explode in their faces. Instead, like their ancestors at Babel, who scattered at the first sign of difference, they retreated into the well-worn narrative of denial. Nothing new is happening here. This is not God. These are blubbering idiots who have had too much to drink. But even in that atmosphere of cynicism, some spoke, and some listened, and into those astonishing exchanges, God breathed new life. Something happens when we dare to speak each other's languages. We experience the limits of our own words and perspectives. We learn curiosity. We discover that God's great deeds are far too nuanced for a single tongue, a single fluency. The Pentecost story continues to compel us because it is a story for our time. We live in a world where words have become toxic, where the languages of our cherished isms threaten to divide and destroy us. The troubles of our day are global, civilizational, catastrophic. If we do not learn the art of speaking across the borders that separate us, we will burn ourselves down to ash. For those of us living in America this election year, the temptation to retreat into our political enclaves is especially strong. Why bother to understand, much less to speak, the languages of those whom we disagree with? Why not sneer? Isn't sneering easier? Isn't it more fun? Maybe. But it is no small thing that the Holy Spirit loosened tongues to break down barriers on the birthday of the church. In the face of difference, God compelled his people to engage. From day one, the call was to press in, linger, listen, and speak. Because here's the thing. No matter how passionately I disagree with your opinions and beliefs, I cannot disagree with your experience. Once I have learned to hear and speak your story in the words that matter most to you, then I have stakes I never had before. I can no longer flourish at your expense. I can no longer make you my other. I can no longer abandon you. At my church, we respond to Sunday morning scripture readings with these words. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Can we hear it? Can we dare to hear what the Spirit is saying? Stop huddling. Stop sneering. Speak. Silence is no longer possible. You are on fire. For books this week, we review Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living by Krista Tippett. After spending a decade exploring questions of faith, science, art, and spirituality in her national public radio program and podcast, On Being, Krista Tippett has distilled her insights on wisdom into an elegant and searching new memoir. Becoming Wise is far more than a compilation of the radio interviews that have won her both a Peabody Award and a National Humanities Medal. Instead, the transcribed interviews, with luminaries such as Jean Venier, Eve Ensler, Elizabeth Alexander, Pico Ayer, and Christian Wyman, form a basic structure, around which Tippett weaves her own meditations on the five raw materials of wise living—words, flesh, love, faith, and hope. Tippett does an impressive job of braiding many voices into a coherent whole, while also sharing her own story, her religious Oklahoma upbringing— her early years as a journalist in divided Cold War Germany, her decision to attend Yale Divinity School, and of course, her rich experiences of listening for a living. In Becoming Wise, she tackles the big questions. What is wisdom? What roles can faith and love play in the healing of our public life? What does it really mean to listen? How is technology shaping us for good and for ill? What does muscular hope look like? What does it mean to live an embodied life? Though Tippett never flinches from the hard complexities underlying these questions, she offers a refreshingly hopeful vision for human flourishing in the century. Her insights are neither tepid nor abstract, they are rather a testimony to the very real wisdom a lifetime of generous listening can instill. For movies this week, we review Night of Cups. Even those who admire the work of director Terence Malick can feel ambivalent about his films. That was a long two hours, said my viewing partner. Maybe that's no surprise for a movie with no script and no dialogue, only improvisations based upon character descriptions at the beginning of each day's shoot. There is no linear narrative in Night of Cups, just a succession of dreamy film fragments with whispery voiceovers. Those fragments mimic the life of Rick, played by Christian Bale, an L.A. screenwriter who drifts through life, staring into space and searching for meaning. He's an excessively prodigal pilgrim, deeply lost, who admits that he spent 30 years ruining my life instead of living it. Perhaps that's the definition of damnation. damnation, he muses, when the fragments of your life never fit into a coherent whole. This is a world, we learn, with no principles, only circumstances. The movie begins with and contains subsequent voiceover readings from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which was delivered under the similitude of a dream, just like this movie. There are many signs and messengers along the way, if we would pay attention. The beauty and terror of the natural world, joyful children and lonely old people, homeless people in the gutter and the beautiful rich at their decadent pool parties, family traumas, Buddhist and Catholic priests, a snippet from Psalm 51, a fortune teller, tarot cards, and those most powerful of twin forces, Thanatos and Eros, lots and lots of loveless Eros. Brook's problem isn't a lack of meaning but a surplus of meaning, as with Wordsworth, the world is too much with us. Our sufferings and troubles, suggests a Christian pastor, are in fact gifts from God to point us to a better way to live, God's megaphone, in the parlance of C.S. Lewis. But it's not clear whether Rick really wants to hear this message. He wears a smirk in some of his scenes, and one reviewer noted the ambivalence he felt, whether he envied or pitied Rick. But for those who want to find that narrow path to a different life, the very last word of this mash-up of the book of Ecclesiastes and the parable of the prodigal son is simple. Begin. Even if this feels clichéd, or subtle as a sledgehammer, there's still a very good reason to see Night of Cups, the cinematography of Emmanuel Lubezki, who won Oscars for The Revenant, Gravity, and Birdman. The word on the street is that Malik has two more films in post-production. And finally, for poems this week, we read Address to the Lord III by John Berryman. Soul watchman of the flying stars, Guard me against my flicker of impulse lust, Teach me to see them as sisters and daughters. Sustain my grand endeavors, Husbandship and crafting. Forsake me not when my wild hours come. Grant me sleep nightly. Grace, soften my dreams. Achieve in me patience till the thing be done. A careful view of my achievement come. Make me from time to time the gift of the shoulder. When all hurt nerves whine, shut away the whiskey. Empty my heart toward thee. Let me pace without fear the common path of death. Cross am I sometimes with my little daughter. Fill her eyes with tears. Forgive me, Lord. Unite my various soul. Soul watchman of the wide and single stars. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May fifteenth, 2016. I'm Debbie Thomas.